Välkommen till Reformerad tro och tanke, en politisk ukorrekt men en bibliskt korrekt podcast. Welcome to Reform Thought and Belief, a podcast that will explore everything from a biblical perspective. Welcome and uh, we have a have a guest with us today, uh, Dr. William Edgar. He is a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside and he teaches apologetics. And uh, he has been writing a, a lot of different books about a lot of different topics. And uh, I did read um, one of his, two of his books. Uh, I read the book, uh, Created and Creating a Biblical Theology of Culture. I think that was maybe a year ago or so, as well as, as a biography on Francis Schaeffer. So I, that's a very good books that I, will, I would highly recommend. And um, uh, I also took some courses at Westminster Theological Seminary. I studied under Dr. Edgar, an uh, Islam course, and he also teaches apologetics. And I would highly recommend to, to do some of those courses as well, to, to look through some of his books. Welcome, Dr. Edgar. It's, it's great to have you here. Thank you for taking the time to, to be with us today. Oh, thanks. It's a great honor. It's great to be here. Maybe you could share something about yourself, you know, your a quick summary, maybe, of your life journey and, and uh, how you... Well, how I'm you an old man. I'm, I'm 78. So there's a lot of uh, life that I've had. Um, my parents met during the war and uh, my dad was stationed in, in Paris, France uh, for a business. So I grew up in Paris going to French school and um, French was really my first language. And then we spent a, uh, seven years in New York and then 20 years in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, so I've grown up uh, mostly in Europe and then some in the United States. Uh, I had, I worked, uh, my first job was a school teacher. And then my second job was professor of apologetics at a reformed seminary in Aix-en-Provence, which is in the south of France. And then since 1989, I've been working at Westminster Seminary teaching cultural apologetics. Um, so um, we have, I have a wonderful wife. We have two children and three uh, grandchildren. Um, and I have a professional jazz band. Um, don't know what else you need to know, but that, that's sort of my profile. No, that's, that's very helpful. Like, how did you, how did you come to faith or have you always been, been a Christian or did you come to faith like later in life or? No, yes, I, I grew up as um, an agnostic and a seeker. My parents were not evangelicals. And um, in the sixties, I had a lot of questions. <clears throat> I went to Harvard University and one of my instructors there was a believer. And he got to know me pretty well and saw that I had some questions that could be answered by uh, professional and de dedicated apologists. So he sent me to Labrie in Switzerland. Um, and I spent a, a couple of days there and that turned my life upside down. And then I spent uh, many, many months uh, studying got to be close friends with the leader of that community whose name is Francis Schaefer. And uh, so I started out my Christian life at Labrie with Schaefer. And then I went to seminary to find out 
more about my new faith. And then started my career as a teacher. So, yeah, I came to faith rather dramatically uh, over a, a weekend in Labrie. So how would you describe Labrie for the people that are, are not familiar with that? Like how it's a hard place to maybe to, to describe like- Yeah, a... it is. I mean, it, back then it was a small group made up of families, um, maybe about 30 guests, uh, men and women, many of which were not from Christian backgrounds. Um, and um, we spent time studying and working physically around the place. And um, the most important presence was Francis Schaefer, who gave seminars and led discussions and spent a lot of time with us. His wife, Edith, was a very important component as well. Uh, Edith was, some people consider her the glue that held the place together. Uh, she was a great prayer warrior. Um, she prepared all the meals and all the uh, accoutrements. And um, so they were really a dynamic couple. And uh, Labrie was this small community, relatively unknown um, until the late 60s when Schaefer started writing his books and he eventually made a movie. And then he became quite well known around Europe and, um, and in North America. And that, that was the, was that the movie, How Shall You Then Live? Is that the, yes. the series? Yes. yes, that's right. I remember watching that myself. It was also quite impactful on, on my life. And oh, good. So, who who was Francis Schaeffer and, and Edith Schaeffer? Uh, Francis Schaeffer was um, grew up in um, Philadelphia, Germantown, working class background. Became a Christian by reading the Bible when he was a teenager, um, and then went to seminary at the urging of his wife. He went to Westminster to study under J. Gresham Machen, who was this legendary Presbyterian leader in the modernist uh, controversies. And um, so Schaefer went there for a couple of years and then he transferred to Faith Seminary. It's a long story, uh, but that was in Wilmington and he became a minister in, in a, something called the Bible Presbyterian Church, uh, and then served in several congregations, and then felt very strongly called to Europe. He had a great burden for the Jews. He had a great burden for uh, Sunday school movements, uh, for uh, theological orthodoxy in a very confused world. So he became what we might call today a missionary um, and he established himself in Lausanne and then in the Swiss mountains and then in a little village called Remo, where he uh, developed this community called Labrie. So he was an, an intriguing man, full of compassion, full of talent, loved um, people, loved history, loved philosophy, uh, loved the arts and uh, related his Christian faith to all of those disciplines in a very vigorous way. 
would you say that like for for people who kind of maybe don't, don't remember Schaefer is it is it fair or maybe it's not fair to compare him somewhat to kind of like a that shape Francis Schaefer was like a pastoral or like a more like a, obviously a strongly Christian person uh, similar to kind of Jordan B Peterson like a fatherly figure kind of that was very pastoral and that's answering people's questions obviously Peterson is doing it maybe more from a secular perspective i'm not sure if he confesses faith but would you say that there are some parallels even though they're also different in a lot of ways yeah that's fair i think um schaefer while he was brilliant and well-read was not as much of an academic as jordan peterson um jordan peterson spent his life uh until recently in in a, academia um and was very encouraging as an alternative point of view to some of the prevailing secularism, Schaefer would certainly qualify as portending an alternative view to pervading secularism. Uh, as you suggested, he was much more pastoral, more evangelistic, I would say, uh, than Jordan. And um, so there's some parallels there. Wouldn't want to go too far with it, but I think it's uh, it, it's not an unfair comparison. Because even though uh, Francis, uh, Francis Schaeffer was like, a, uh, he was, a, uh, he was a pastor, obviously a theologian, he, he did, did reach out to a lot of people and he did like a kind of like a non-denominational kind of ministry where people really from all kinds of background, like new age, atheist, agnostics, you know, could come to him and, and they didn't necessarily have to become, you know, a Presbyterian, you know, to, you know, to, to kind of listen to him. So no, that's exactly right. Yeah. People came from all kinds of backgrounds. I'm a good example of that. I had no uh, connections with anything Presbyterian or Reformed. Um, I didn't have any connections with the church. Uh, well, I was vaguely uh, put into Sunday school in the Episcopal Church because my mother was an Episcopalian. But that was my only connection with religion. And I came up to Labrie as a pretty good agnostic. Uh, and there were many, many people, as you said, from different backgrounds. We had atheists, we had Buddhists, um, we had secularists. We also had some kids brought up in the church, but who were disillusioned by the church for various reasons. And um, as you said, Schaefer did not make them Presbyterian. He made them, he led them into Christianity. Uh, he did have a Presbyterian church in, in Waymo, and people who went really far with him might have uh, joined that church and, and carried it further. It's a church that's still going strong today uh, called the International Presbyterian Church. But we weren't uh, told to join that group or, or anything like it. We were asked to become Christians. We were actually just at the, the conference at the International Presbyterian Church in Earlville, uh, and, and we actually, as a as a church, are in a process that we, we might join them. So we are very it's a, it's a great great denomination and a great group of people. Yeah, so. well, I'm pretty familiar with it. Um, you probably met Johnny Gibson when you were there. He, uh, one of yeah. the speakers, and then um, one of the one of our dear friends, who's a, actually a missionary to to France, um, who's, um, uh, he's actually a Welshman, 
uh, Gethin Jones is a leader in that denomination. And uh, the founder, one of the founders of it is still alive, but he's retired, Randall McCauley. I don't know if he was at those meetings or not, but- uh, Yeah, I, I had dinner with Gethin and uh, last, just, just great. recently. Great. Yeah, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah, indeed. And uh, wonderful to spend time with him and his wife. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a it's a it's a wonderful ministry, and and we're very very thankful for the time we, we got to spend with them. So Schaefer was he was actually a founder of the International Presbyterian Church as well as the Labry Fellowship. That's right. That's right. Um, and theoretically, they were quite separate. <clears throat> In practice, you couldn't always tell because you know Sunday worship was in their chapel, and it was. Um, governed ecclesiastically by the IPC, uh, though most of us didn't know it when we went to church there. Uh, Labrie was independent um, from all of that, but it was hard not to uh, to see a, a conflation of, of the two in some ways. Um, so uh, often when Labrie branches were started in places like London, um, Ealing and so forth, there was an IPC component. Um, it was natural to have a church uh, extension of the work of Labrie, which is much more of an evangelistic outreach. What do you think with, with Schaefer that, why was he able? I mean, he was very much a, you know, a, a Bible-believing Christian, you know, he, um, and, and, but he was still able to he had kind of like a, a fundamentalist, not not in, not in a bad sense. Uh, a part of him was was kind of fundamentalist, but he had another side where he was very much sensitive to culture and, and able to kind of almost almost like a prophet, like foresee things and and able to understand people's objections and really the question behind the questions. Why do you think he was able to be so much like? far ahead of his time, you know, and, and, and able to meet people who maybe had a, quite a different background than he had? Yeah, that's a hard question to answer, other than to say he had a, um, a warm heart for uh, God and for people. And um, yes, you're right, he did have fundamentalist tendencies. So if you get him talking about uh, the church or things going on in America, he would have sounded much more like a, a right-wing fundamentalist. But when you talk about culture, museums, uh, young people, uh, drugs and rock and roll, um, his, his heart was very compassionate towards people caught in those things. I don't know how else to explain it except to say that he loved God and, and loved people and um, he had a unique calling um, in that way. So he, in some ways, he was maybe able to kind of catch maybe some of the best on the left and and, and the right, you know, depending yeah. on how left and right is. To, like you, you want to be compassionate towards people from different backgrounds, but at the same time, you know, you want to approach things rationally, and and you know, be a uh, and and like hold obviously to the uh, to the right doctrines. But he was like really kind of able to to connect the the heart and the and the brain. Yeah, very, very good description. He, you know, once I remember somebody asking him, uh, how can you believe in such fundamental doctrines when you're so in tune with culture? 
And he answered, it's because I believe in those doctrines that I can be in touch with culture. And he went on to explain that um, the fundamentals of the faith were the, uh, the foundation for his apologetics and his opening to culture. So he, for him, there was no dichotomy. It was, um, it was all connected. Uh, for some, it didn't make any sense uh, to put together such awareness of culture and such conservative views of the church, but they, they both were held together in his, in his mind. In the, in the light of that, like, how, how do you, like, why do you think that he was important? You know, why, why, what, what kind of do you think um, uh, made him different from a lot of other people at his time? Well, I think what made him important was not his scholarly ability or not his um, leadership in uh, the church and so forth, but was his ability to encourage people to connect the Christian faith with the wider world of culture. I don't know how many times I heard people say, I grew up in a tribe and had no idea that you could read a book from a Christian point of view or go to a movie from a Christian point of view. And uh, Schaefer changed that for me. Um, so he was not, you wouldn't want to, you know, uh, follow him as a, as a leading scholar. He had great instincts, but he was just not a scholar. He was um, an evangelist, almost a prophet who was able to connect uh, culture with uh, Christian truth in a way that many, many people in that generation had never seen, had never appreciated. And, 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 and with that, you know, it's what kind of impact, you know, doing all these things, what kind of impact would you say that you have today? And maybe as, um, both just on the culture training evangelist, but also maybe, maybe as well politically, because he, he got involved on, on, on certain issues, I think, politically. Yeah, that's a hard question. I, what impact does he have today? I think his excitement about worldview thinking, applying Christian doctrine to all of life, is still having an impact on um, all kinds of people. Uh, the details are, are not the same. You know, he used to talk about the theater of the absurd. Well, we don't have that much anymore. Um, or he would, he would uh, comment on uh, John Cage and modern composers, and those are not really on the agenda today, but his incredible enthusiasm about connecting things is what I think is the lasting value of Francis Schaeffer. Um, his, his views of politics, I do not share. Um, many of us who were followers of Schaefer were disappointed in his uh, aligning himself with the moral majority and the new evangelical right. Um, he always had that tendency, but I think um, in his older years, uh, people like Jerry Falwell and others latched onto him as somebody who could speak for them. And I think he I don't want to make a judgment, but I, I think he got roped into 
some of those trends, which um, were a departure from the 1960s and his, his worldview thinking, um, it, he was a bit uncritical. So uh, that's one man's opinion, of course. Uh, it's shared by others. Did, did that turn some some people maybe off that he kind of took us? I mean, I, it, I would have to say that I, I do, I do agree with you. I think a minister will have to be very careful to take sides politically. And you want the, the church to kind of, I was tell with, with our church, like I wanted to be a safe zone for just people mm -hmm. from all perspectives and, and political sides to come and to worship God, you know, and, and I never preach politically. And I, I would that, would he be able even to reach more people you think if he stayed neutral politically? Well, I don't know about neutrality, but if he had been consistently presuppositionalist about every area of life, including politics, he would have given people the tools uh, to approach trends, not from a systematically right or left point of view, but uh, from a fresh point of view. Um, so, you know, I think people like David Brooks, one of our pundits, uh, who has been, who has become a Christian, he, he would he would argue that um, the, the the systematic way in which evangelicals many of them followed George uh, have followed uh, Donald Trump um, is not a a true expression of the Christian faith. The truer expression of the Christian faith, as Brooks says, is by people like John Stott, Oz Guinness, Tim Keller, especially. And they, they're not neutral. They're very uh, uh, critical of tr political trends, but not from a systematically right-wing perspective. Oh, I hope I've said that right. Um, it, it, the, the problem for me with Schaefer's allegiances was not that he was wrong to get involved with politics, but his views were, were not biblical. Uh, they, they were conservative rather than Christian in some ways. So uh, I hope I've said that right. No, absolutely. I think I, I can definitely resonate with you. And I, I think when Jesus came, he said that my kingdom is not of this world. And quite certain that, you know, Jesus would, I mean, Jesus did critique the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the, the right and the left. Yeah, that's right. And, and said my kingdom is not of this world. So he had some quite some some harsh critique of, of both sides and pretty much telling them both that they're they're both doing something wrong. Yeah. And they both need to repent. And uh I believe actually that it was Tim Keller on the Leslie Nibigan lecture at Princeton that he said the uh, that something about the, the right was was right about the, the sexual ethics and, and the abortion issue and, and the left was right, not not necessarily like policy wise, left right, but right about being concerned about you know doing things better for different races and racial yeah. justice and also being more concerned about the poor so and he said but none of the sides are actually forgiving each other and that's what none of them actually practice of so each side are doing something right but none of them are forgiving each other and that might be a you know a, at least one way to approach it and, and to be to be loving and tolerant to people and know that people vote for very different reasons and and uh, even though we again i don't think keller at all meant to say that policies 
again, uh, principles are principles and, and how you apply those principles would be quite different. And, uh, but I think it's, it kind of goes back always to me, like my kingdom is not of this world. And, and if it just happens to be, it, it lines perfectly up on the left or the right, then I really almost like Jesus, what Jesus said there cannot almost be true. I think there has to be some criticism of both sides. Yeah, that's very, very well put. Yeah, that's right. One of Keller's great virtues is to see idolatry on all kinds of sides. Um, you know, the idolatry of the right is probably to overlook, to some extent, issues like race and poverty. Uh, the idolatry of the left is to, is to stress them in such a way that uh, they're not as concerned for the unborn, let's say, or things like that. So, yeah. Um, we want to be presuppositional and not systematically right or left. Absolutely, no, I I, I, I fully fully agree with that, and I think it's uh, it's unfortunate to to especially see the uh, in I think in the states, you know, you really see a quite quite an, a very unhealthy development, you know, on, on both sides. The politics is is really becoming something very very ugly. I think then it's not not a not a good Christian witness. People can be convinced about all kinds of things, but uh, they really lack. I think the I think at least Schaefer, I would imagine, would at least love people, you know, regardless if he disagreed with them. Yeah, and he, he the I think would today. be a little more uh, tolerant, um, though he would uh, subscribe a, a bit more to the right than the left. But he would he would plead for love. One of his abiding themes was. Uh, orthodoxy of doctrine, but orthodoxy of practice, by which he meant exhibiting love in the church. And you don't see that much of it around today. But I guess back at Schaefer's time, the, the left and right was was not entirely the same same thing as it is today. So I think he... he... Well, that's true. Yeah. But, but definitely, I, I fully agree with you. I think it's a, it's a, it's a very good point. Uh, back to Schaefer, like what what apologetic method did he use? It might be a hard question to to answer, but I mean, the, what what method? How would you define him? You know, because he was a presuppositionalist to some degree, but somewhat of an evidentialist as well. Or what would you say? Yeah, I'd say his method was eclectic. Um, he drew from uh, the best of evidentialism, the best of presuppositionalism. Um, it lacked a coherency that somebody like Cornelius Van Til advocated. Um, but his greatest gift, I think, if you want to label it presuppositional, was to show people how they could not successfully live their unbelieving uh, position, either in philosophy or in lifestyle. Um, and I think that was, to me, what most helped me to see the truth of the Christian position is the inability um, of or the impossibility of the contrary. So, yeah, there's a good book. Uh, I'm going to forget the name of the author now, but um, that describes his, his apologetic as as one of a combination of love and truth. And I think that's what it was. Uh, he and, and Van Til had a parting of the ways, which 
I think was totally regrettable. And it was over Schaefer thinking Van Til was more of a fideist and even a determinist than he was. And Van Til uh, criticized Schaefer for being careless about the use of reason. And I think if they had spent much more time together and listened to each other, which was not their gift, uh, it might have uh, improved things. As it was, they, they split their ways and Schaefer went one direction and Van Til went another. Uh, long story. But uh, that's his method, I would say, eclectic. So it's more like a, a mix, would you say, than maybe in... Yeah, a mix. With, I mean, he, he does have... He, if you asked him directly, he would say, I'm a presuppositionalist. But what he meant often by that was um, not the fully transcendental method. You, you went to Westminster, so you understand this. Uh, of uh, you know Kant and so forth, but the, um, the the verification of truth by the ability or inability to put it into practice, and it's a kind of presuppositionalism, and it's evangelistically extremely useful. When I when I do evangelistic discussions with people, the person in the back of my mind and the method in the back of my mind is Schaefer. Uh, when I think of conversations I witnessed of his, um, even though I'm, I'm sympathetic, greatly sympathetic to Van Til's transcendental approach, I don't think Van Til's gift was uh, as, a, as a practical evangelist. It's quite different when you're out in the street and, and you actually yeah, have to- Yeah, he was in the classroom. Quiet. And, and uh, people tried to defend him by saying, you know, he was, he could be a pastor to the community and, and he stood on the steps of Wall Street and preached. Well, he did that, but his basic calling was academic. He was a polemicist and uh, interested in epistemology and issues of uh, ethics and so forth. So as, as you say, it's quite different when you're out in the trenches as, as Schaefer was talking to real people with real problems. Absolutely. And and how would you maybe like quickly describe like presuppositionalism for people might, that might not be familiar with it? And like how, what would be an example maybe of like how Schaefer would persuade someone? Right. I mean, Van Til didn't like the term presuppositionalist because it sounded much too much like um, an intellectual supposition. He, he, um, he believed that the Christian faith should be defended fully transcendentally, meaning that you get into the uh, reasons and the grounds for, for meaning and uh, the, 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 the defense of, of, of a way of life based on those grounds. Uh, Schaefer, without using all that terminology, uh, practiced that sort of thing all the time. Uh, I can remember scores of conversations where he patiently went into the person's soul to try to discover where that person was coming from and then gently 
show the person that he, he was not living with, with what he thought were his convictions. And some of that was just very simple. It was, you know, somebody who says ethics is a social contract. He would say, well, what about the Holocaust? And they would say, well, that was different. Uh, or um, anyway, lo lots of examples where, you know, for example, Freud, who believed that religion was a neurosis and belief in God was a crutch. Um, Schaefer would say, well, his critique is a crutch. Uh, and Freud might even admit that, but he didn't like it. So he said, I prefer my crutch to yours. I mean, that's, that's really uh, applied presuppositionalist apologetics, um, showing how you know, you 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 profess one thing and and you're not living it. Um, though Ventil didn't, I think, approve of C.S. Lewis altogether. In some ways, Lewis is quite a a good presuppositionalist. Like in his book um, on uh, the abolition of man, um, Lewis criticizes. Uh, Richards and Ayer and the uh, the different subjectivists. Uh, for example, you know, Richards and others would say somebody looking at a waterfall and saying it's sublime. They're not saying anything objective about the waterfall. They're just saying they feel sublime about it. And Lewis says, no, you, you don't feel sublime. You might feel admir admiration. Uh, but in order to hold that position, you've got to be inconsistent. You've got to have some objective standards. Uh, where do they come from? So that to me is the heart of presuppositionalism is asking where your standards come from when they seem insufficient to guide you in your own life. Would you say there that actually, no, I, and I, I, I fully agree with you. I, I do think C.S. Lewis is a, is a great presuppositionalist, but would you say that C.S. Lewis, would you describe him like as, as somewhat like a soft presuppositionalist or, or maybe yeah. he would? Yeah, so that's a good way of saying it. Okay, C.S. Lewis himself was quite eclectic. Obviously, he espoused natural law in a way that somebody like Van Til would, would not have approved. But it wasn't a dogmatic natural law saying you've got to go here first before you can then embrace, you know, more subtle Christian doctrines. It was much more of a defense of absolutes, which people claimed they, they didn't have, but he said you do have them. Uh, so in, in, you know, like mere Christianity, he, he talks about what happens in an argument people don't disagree about the standards of their argument. They disagree about who's holding to them. Now that to me is presuppositionalism, though uh, you know, you might say, well, he's fallen into natural law. Uh, I, I think that's, it's a little more complicated than that. Would you say that, that uh, the quote from Lewis, I'm probably not quoting it correctly here, but I uh, believe in God like I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Like, do you think Van Til would approve of that? He ought to, because that's totally a presuppositionalist statement. Van Til loved that psalm that says, in your light, I see light. So um, 
whether he would have agreed if C.S. Lewis were in the room with him and he stated it that way, he, he, he should have because his system embraced that, that view, which is a beautiful statement of um, how um, your view of life depends on your source. Absolutely. No, it's, um, I, I think it's, there's a lot of, lot of, um, sometimes I'm wondering if C.S. Lewis did, did the breed man tilt, you know, and, and, and it's. Um, yeah, you uh, wish they would have given each other more time, you know, they were in such different universes. Definitely. What, uh, when it comes to, to apologetics and when it comes to Francis Schaeffer, what is the connection to Francis Schaeffer's or like what is the theology of Francis Schaeffer and how did that impact his uh, apologetics and, and like his ministry? Yeah, good question, difficult question. If you asked him that, he would say, I, my theology is reformed. And in the church that he created, they used the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is um, very, very uh, reformed. Um, in practice, he often sounded more like a fundamentalist um, than a reformed theologian. So for example, in terms of you know, doctrines like predestination, he would say yes, uh, but the Arminians had a point about human freedom. Um, you, you earlier on asked me about his eschatology. Um, Schaefer was a convinced uh, premillennialist. And those discussions are not current today, but in those days, um, there were heated arguments between pre, post, and ah, millennialists. Um, most people at Westminster would have been ah, millennial, a few post millennials, one or two pre, and they wouldn't have cared. They would have said that the confession doesn't specify. Schaefer left the seminary partly because he believed they weren't adhering to the only biblical view, which is pre. Now, very difficult, complicated stuff here. The premillennialists, as you know, believe that there are two second comings. One is when Christ comes and establishes a rule on earth um, based on the revisitation of many Old Testament principles. And uh, then the second is when he comes to judge the world. Many premillennialists believe oddly that the, the history of the world is going downhill until the first second coming. Um, and so they, uh, Schaefer was a, that kind of pessimist, uh, like in his lectures on the line of despair, he believed that most of modern culture was on the other side of the line of despair, having give, given up absolutes. That to me is a, is a premillennialist view. Instead of seeing, uh, as Vantil used to say, the, the bad gets worse and the good gets gooder. Um, in other words, the wheat and the tares are growing up together. Schaefer was not so excited about the good part of the, of the wheat and tares. Uh, oddly, he, he, of course, he believed in culture and he, uh, he embraced the arts. And so 
he wasn't in practice that consistent, but he was a thoroughgoing premillennialist and believed that Revelation 20 uh, taught a thousand year reign of Christ after the first second coming. Uh, so yeah, he was, I think there's a, I hope I'm being fair about this. There's a connection between a certain kind of cultural pessimism and the premillennialist view of, of, of eschatology. And he certainly shared that. It's a very interesting thing to me because when, when I find out that Schaefer was premillennial and premillennials, as, as you already said, is they tend to be very pessimistic and maybe skeptical. They, they have kind of some like of a semi-monastic attitude some, sometimes to culture, like let's withdraw. And, and I, I find it very surprised, surprising actually that Schaefer was premillennial because usually people who are into cultural transformation and engaging with culture, they, they tend to be more often than not, at least a millennial, uh, certainly post-millennial, I think. Is that, you think that's true? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, his interest in culture was, um, I don't want to be unfair here, but it was for the purpose of showing how degraded things have become. Uh, it had almost nothing to do with, uh, look at the glory of, uh, of God's common grace. Every now and then something like that would seep through. Um, but uh, his interest in culture was real, but it wasn't to celebrate the progress of the human race. It was, it was to show how it, the, the human race had gone, had degenerated um, and it was getting worse and worse. And he made ridiculous predict predictions like um, in, in a few years, the government will be run by priests uh, who, who are manipulative of the human uh, soul and, and, and so forth. And you can always find evidence for degeneration. It's all over the place. But he lacked, uh, in my view, an, an emphasis on... Uh, the contrary forces of uh, common grace. You know, like I, I wouldn't be alive today if it weren't for modern medicine and its advances. Schaefer might intellectually agree with that, but he wasn't excited about it. He saw medicine as manipulative and leading to abortions and things like that. And so, um, yeah, it would be a good, interesting study to do between his or other people's premillennialism and cultural pessimism, because I think there's a real link there. Would you say that, uh, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a great, great insights, and that's actually very helpful. I, I never, never thought about it that way, but I can definitely, I, when, when you do say it, you know, when I think about it twice, it's um, engaging with culture, you know, that there is, you know, how shall we then live, and there is this kind of like pessimism, I think, that you don't usually find with a millennials and, and certainly not post millennials. And and maybe he should have spent more time with with Ventil because I, I know Ventil has taught deeply about common grace, and and maybe that would have, you know, benefited yeah. both of them, you know, greatly. Yeah, maybe maybe so. I wish it were true. Uh, Schaefer was just not that interested in common grace. Um, and uh, it would have been wonderfully beneficial for him to, to sit at Van Til's feet and listen to that. 
just as it would have been beneficial for Van Til to listen to how Schaefer appropriates presuppositionalism in conversations. Yeah, it's great tragedy uh, that they never, they met a couple of times, didn't go very well. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, these are the what ifs of history. So you, so you yourself will be be a millennial, I, I would, I would guess. Or... Yeah, it, I don't like the title very much because it sounds like there is no millennium, and I think there is. I think it's now, but yeah, you can use that label if you want. Sure. Yeah, sorry about the the label. And no, uh... that's okay. <laughs> it's understandable. I just don't like it because it sounds like I don't believe in any millennial rule, but but I do. I believe it's now. Uh, so I'm not a millennial. Uh, I don't know what I, what I am, and it's not a good discussion actually. The three positions, anyway. Yeah, no, I think it's. Uh, I do think though, though, you know, the not maybe just the believing in the millennial now. The a millennial is is a position that I think is may, maybe the most flexible, and in some ways. I'm also a millennial. And the reason for that is really that I, I think eschatology is very complicated and I think it's very difficult to interpret. And I think the a millennial position is, is really able, I think, to most flexibly deal with all the difficult yeah. scriptures. And actually you can say, you know, this is what I believe, but it doesn't really give like a comprehensive answer for all ages. You know, it's, there is a lot of antichrist, you know, in, in systems that's been against christ like in all, all all history and and there most likely will be one you know before jesus comes back as well so it really allows i think for all the perspectives and and, and to some degree as well the the, the post mills might, might be too positive and you can get the attitude that well you know it's going to go all go well in the end so it doesn't really matter that much what i do and then the pre-mill kind of can go the opposite way that you know saying that it's all going to go in the wrong direction so it doesn't matter what i do but i think for me like i i would and maybe same for you i would do my best and i have no idea you know if that will be good enough or not but uh, we cannot know the future even though that that might not be true with uh, the post mills and the and the, and the pre-mill that they might not all conclude like that but i yeah. at least i find myself to be very content i also came from pre-mill and but now i uh, yeah at least at presently i'm i'm, I'm a mill and I find that to be quite a, a good summary, I think, of what the scriptures are saying and, and allowing interpretations also be, to be somewhat fle flexible. But uh, again, there's obviously a lot of great people who differ with us. And Well, for sure. Yeah. And that I mean, I think the, the A-mill position tries to recognize both the present reign of Christ and the, the imminent victory of the church and uh the decadence of culture to the point where jesus as you know suggested when he comes again would they would he find faith on the earth so the amelin amil position tries to do justice to both sides of that um i think gerhardus voss is very helpful in this he sees um the present reign of christ as an already not yet um, and that's just not so true of, of our wonderful pre-mill brethren. Would you say there that uh, with Costa Westminster standards, uh, even though it doesn't address eschatology, 
directly. Would you say that uh, most of the authors, the Westminster standards, would they post mail maybe in, in, in a mail? Like, would, would you say that uh, the, the standards is more compatible with a mail and post mail, or do you think it really doesn't make a difference? Yeah, so, I mean, the standards stayed away from any dogmatic statements about that, but many of the authors were post mill, um, a few maybe a mill, like Jonathan Edwards, who comes later, uh, who subscribed to the standards, believed that um, with the preaching of the gospel, Jesus was coming again soon. And that uh, he was, that the great awakening was a, uh, an open door to the uh, imminent coming again of, of Christ. Uh, so that's probably where they all stood. Although the good news is that you can be any of the three and still subscribe to the uh, Westminster Standards because it is not is not dogmatic about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's it is helpful that it focuses on the essential of the faith. Um, but uh, but at the same time, you know, there are implications i think of of, of these things uh, it's an interesting thing in the light of this uh, that you know i know kirk cameron who did the left behind series you know he i was told that he he become post mill which really? is yeah I, I find that to be uh there's a guy that i know that, that met him and uh, i find that to be quite quite interesting you know he's kind of the face of the the did francis schaefer believe in in the rapture like the seven years of tribulation or would he uh i don't think so his wife did um I, i'm not sure if you pressed him he probably would have said uh we don't know his wife was sure that there was a rapture and that you know airplanes would go down when the pilot was raptured and all that sort of stuff um, she was much more of a, uh, you know, fundamentalist, almost dispensationalist than he was. He was not a dispensationalist. Um, so to answer your question, I don't think he would have embraced certainly the secret rapture. Uh, he might have embraced some form of rapture before the first second coming uh but i i don't think so i don't remember his discussing this or getting too excited about it yeah i think um i i mean i would i would imagine that he would not be a presbyterian minister if he was a dispensationalist maybe the, that's right that that would that would be against the system i think of, of the yeah, you shouldn't be yeah although they there are plenty of them around definitely yeah no it's uh uh, that there's, I think, especially today with the internet, people tend to pick up all kinds of new beliefs very quickly, and it was very prominent in, in, in the states for a time. But the back to to um, uh, Schaefer um, and some of the last questions here. Uh, what positive as well as negative things can we learn from Schaefer? Like, what would you maybe say? Like, is the key positive thing that today we we can learn and apply from Schaefer? And and what things is it that Schaefer did that we do not want to imitate? <laughs> what a question. Well, I mean, for me, the greatest positive is his passionate love for God and his passionate love for people. And just alongside with that, his passionate concern for truth. Um, those are takeaways. Now, uh, 
if you start to peel the onion, you might find that his view of truth was slightly rationalistic and so forth. But um, I think his, his love for the way God is Lord over all of life um, and his love for people, whosoever, I mean, Labrie was a place that just loved people, uh, are the takeaways. Are there things that we wouldn't embrace? Yeah, I, I don't think his line of despair is a very good uh, historiography. Um, the loss of absolutes is true in some areas, but it's not true of others. Uh, and, um, you know, his line of despair uh, said in a general way that absolutes were being challenged and now everything is moving towards the irrational. And I think there is some of that, but um, there's also the rationalistic, which is just as bad as the irrational. And he, um, I'm sure he believed that, but he wasn't as, didn't care about it as much. Uh, so those, those would be things to, to, to look at carefully. And there are, there are parts of his detailed analysis of certain things that uh, you just wouldn't embrace anymore. Um, his, his, his views on race were ahead of his time in some ways, but they were not uh, fully biblical. He, he didn't see the paternalism of race relationships. Uh, he didn't see um, the class nature of race. He, he saw just raw prejudice, which good for him. But uh, I think we would have to look carefully back at his views and uh, try to uh, cull the good from the bad there. So, I mean, th this is hopelessly general, but uh, his, his passion for God and perhaps details about his, his criticism of absolutes would, would be the candidates. It's this despair for maybe the things we we want to be optimistic a little bit yeah. more. So, and and uh, well, he, um, you know, he believed that, uh, for example, Hegel uh, opened the door towards relativism with his so-called view of uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Um, I I think Hegel was an thoroughgoing rationalist who believed that the, the the world's soul was was one based on human reason and uh, I don't think Schaefer saw that you can argue that he um, he was right about certain details in Hegel but he got him wrong uh, he way over criticized Kierkegaard um, began to change his mind a little towards the end but um, he he uh, you know, I think he was just too sweeping in his critique of the loss of absolutes. And he saw everything falling under that rubric. Uh, back to our discussion of common grace. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think his, his reading of, of Hegel, like I'm, I'm no expert on Hegel, but I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I know he, he gotten some some critique from that, you know, but, uh, but no, no, every, every, everyone gets certain things wrong. I think, you know, yeah, you that's know, right. you write yeah. as much as he did, you know, it's not, it's impossible, I think, to be right about everything. And I, I find it very interesting also what you said about 
rationalism and irrationalism. And I mean, rationalism, correct me if I'm wrong, but and, and maybe modernism, you know, did lead to the Holocaust. And I think, I mean, the Germans were the most educated nation with the best university and you yeah. went to the arts. I mean, you best classical music and, and they're playing, you know, instruments while they're putting people into, into the chambers. And, and then you have today, you know, irrationalism, you know, you can choose your gender. You know, it's it's uh, yeah, yeah. So in both of those, I think I'm, I'm both of those are terrible in my opinion. And I think yeah, we, both are alive and well. Yeah, very good point. So that might be uh, maybe Schaefer would be be surprised to, to to see what's happening at today's universities, or or maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he would have kind of foreseen he would have said it. it's all going irrational, just as I told you it would. Um, and the subjectivism of I can choose my gender. He would have said, "Yeah, I told you so." Um, what he would not have maybe seen so clearly is uh, elevating science and reason as uh, an absolute that uh, you know the laws of Aristotle and so forth have become uh, idols. I don't think he would have seen that as clearly. So um, yeah, hard to say. He's not around to defend himself. No, absolutely. I think, uh, and I mean, even today, you know, we we do have Peter Singer, who, who argues for the, the killing of newborns, and and we also have people who, you know, are are in the in the gender studies and argue for quite different things. So, as you say, like we do have the irrationalist as well as the rationalist. And, yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure which one I prefer, to be honest. I no, they're uh, both a pox on both of those houses, right? Absolutely. It's Tim Keller's two kinds of idolatry, the, the prodigal and the elder brother, you know, uh, then one is not a good bargain between the two. I think Schaefer in, in his moments of weakness thought it'd be better to have rationalism, even though it wasn't ultimately Christian, because it at least believed in absolutes. And I don't, I don't agree with that. You know. Absolutely. And uh, as we, we're getting close to, to an end here, I, I would like to kind of end, end with two, two kind of last, last questions. Uh, how has he impacted your life and ministry? And maybe you could also kind of connect that with how did it impact your view on maybe apologetics and, and theology? And, and maybe with that, you could also recommend a book that you have written about <laughs> your, your apologetics method or, or like one, one book that you kind of feel like summarizes at least some of these things that you would consider. The impact on my life uh, can be summarized in his wonderful series on true spirituality. Uh, it's not systematic. It's not completely reformed, but it's unbelievably lively calling us to what he li liked to call reality, which means that you've got to honestly admit your sins, honestly come to God and ask him to uh, reveal himself to you. That's been a big thing in, in my life. And uh, I wrote about it in the book you mentioned earlier, um, which is a study of his view of the Christian life. Uh, Crossways did a, a great series on the Christian life according to, and there's about 20 people. And his was, um, I call it countercultural 
Christian Christianity. Um, how it made an impact on my apologetics? Well, okay, you asked for a book. Reasons of the Heart is a book that I started with, and I think it still is something I would stand by. Um, the book you mentioned earlier on uh, on culture, though he's not a direct influence, he's an indirect influence um, because of the, the courage he gives you to, to look at culture. Um, other, you know, all kinds of articles and books that I've done trying to defend his, his views, even though, as we've said, I've taken my distance from some parts of them. So he's had an enormous uh, impact on my life and I will never, uh, I'll never forget what he's meant to me. Absolutely. I, I never got to, I mean, it's very encouraging to, I mean, you, you knew him personally. I, I've only read his books, but it, it changed my life when I read his books. And wow. so it's, uh, I think I wouldn't be doing this work today. And I was brought wow. to, brought to, you know, to the Westminster, you know, I, I got to study under you and got to know you <laughs> and, and as well as many other people. So it's, uh, I'm back in Norway planting these churches by the grace of God. And, and it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I would not really have seen myself been doing all Scott. I mean, he was one of one of the people he God used in one of many people uh, to to bring bring me here. And um, with that, I think you know we could. I will just end with one last thing. You know, we have I think a few minutes before you have to we have to end this. And uh, you wrote a book, "A Supreme Love: The Music of Jazz and the Hope of the Gospel." Mm -hmm. And uh, I would imagine that you know Schaefer, you know your theology and and you know obviously his life impacted you a lot and. I think Schaefer, a lot about a lot of people don't know about him. I, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but he had a great appreciation for, especially maybe the art. Mm -hmm. But you are quite a quite a musician yourself, and maybe you could just quickly summarize this: our supreme love, the music, so the music of jazz and the hope of the gospel. What is jazz, and and what hope of the gospel does it bring? <laughs> well, the great surprise when I got to Labrie as an agnostic was that his best friend and partner in the ministry was a Dutch art historian named Hans Ruckmacher. And now I don't agree with a lot of Ruckmacher, but the beauty of his uh, approach was he was sure that jazz, especially the jazz of the 20s, was inspired by Christian principles. And he used to compare them to uh, Baroque music. Uh, somewhat disputable, but a fascinating com comparison between King Oliver and Bach. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's, and I, I was totally taken with this. I've since developed more nuances. Rookmacher was quite critical of modern jazz. I, I am not, um, but it, I've never uh, abandoned that great love for the connection between all the arts, but especially jazz music and, and the gospel. Uh, and in the book, I try to show that connection without, you know, I hope uh, gushing or going overboard. Um, and I show how it comes out of slavery and uh, the, the oppression of black people and the music that comes out of that, the music of suffering. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to add. I'm glad the book is out. 
been out for about three weeks and um, I'm really happy to see that it's doing pretty well. I'm very, very glad to hear that. You know, I, I have not read this book yet, but uh, I have read a few of your other books and I, I really enjoy re reading your books and I also would recommend other people to do the same thing. You know, you've written many books, so it would take some time to get, get through all of them. Well, but, don't worry. I'm an old man. But there's uh, there's, there's quite a, uh, yeah, a, a good selection of books that I would encourage people to, to take a look at. And, and then maybe especially in the, in the, the field of music and, and culture and, and apologetics, I think, which is your your specialty yeah good well we probably should um close it off my uh next meeting has just arrived and uh i need to uh change my focus but thank you very much for this time yeah thank you very much this uh will uh thank you so much for taking the time to 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 be with us and uh yeah it's been a been a, been a wonderful time and uh yeah thank you very much Oh, you're welcome. Glad the technology finally worked. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
three.